Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. If you're visiting with us or uh, watching on YouTube for the first time, I want to welcome you to the uh, Wednesday night Bible study at River of Life. Uh, We are going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are almost done. In fact, I think we've got two more uh, Wednesday nights before we'll be done. But tonight, we're going to be once again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Now, we covered this last week, and I told you guys, if you'll remember... I wasn't sure what I was going to do, if I was going to move on or if I was going to come back to it. And uh, several of you uh, had just in conversations had said, well, I really wish you would come back to it. And the reason for that is because I left you last week with that question. Do you know him? Do you know him? So tonight we are going to focus on uh, the title of the lesson is Blessed Assurance. How do you know that you know Jesus Christ. Now, the irony of this lesson is that in order to talk about assurance and show you how to know that you know Jesus Christ, we're actually going to use a passage of Scripture that creates the opposite effect in Christians, okay? And it's the, it's the passage that we used last week. So let's listen to the words of Jesus. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, after talking with some of you and, and, and talking with others that, that, that watch, that don't go to church here, but I've got some friends around the country that watch, it's, it's obvious that there's something about this passage that creates fear in a Christian, worry, anxiety in a Christian. In fact, someone I was talking to this week who is a, is a strong Christian, I was telling them what I was going to be teaching on. And when I mentioned, it's the scripture where Jesus says, depart from me. I heard him under their breath. Man, I hate that scripture. I hate that scripture. And he doesn't mean he hates. What he means is, I hate the way it makes me feel. I hate the fact that it makes me doubt, that it makes me worry, that it makes me think, well, if, you know, if that happened to them, it could happen to me. That's what, that's what he meant by that. Now, by the way... That should automatically tell you something's wrong. Automatically, it should tell you something is wrong. Because after all, let me ask a question. Do we really believe that we're serving a God who wants his children to, uh, to fear and worry and feel anxiety about being his children? Is that, is that really the God you think you serve? Listen, I'm a father and I'm a grandfather. 
And I've, I will discipline my children and discipline my grandchildren and I'll call them on the carpet. I'll do all the things that a father should do. But let me tell you something I would never do in a million years. I would never create any doubt or worry or fear or anxiety that they belong to me. Are you with me? I would never do that. Now, Jesus just said a few verses ago, Matthew 5, 11, if you, being evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those that that love Him? So, here's the thing. I don't believe for a second that God would want us to read a scripture and doubt that I'm His child. Now, listen, if you're not a Christian, then you should worry. But if you belong to him, these scriptures like this should not make you feel that way. Now, my goal tonight is to change that. My goal tonight is to change your view of that passage. In fact, change it so much that when you read it in the future, you won't read it and feel fear. You'll read it and feel free. Would you like that? Would that be, would that be wonderful? That's my goal. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, we covered the scripture last week and we're going to cover it again, but this time we're going to come at it from a completely different way. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a 30,000 foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what we've been doing over the past year that we've been in this study is, if you will, we, we kind of, every Wednesday night, we kind of parachute in and we cover a certain passage, right? And then the next week, we parachute in and cover another passage and so on and so forth. And we've been doing that for a year. And there's nothing wrong with that. that that's good. And we've learned a lot from that. But anybody that's ever prepared a sermon knows that there's a point you're trying to get people to. Right? There's going to be details and illustrations and all of that. But there's an overarching theme. There's a place you want to take people at the end. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to see all the trees and miss the forest. We don't want to get so wrapped up in the details that we miss the big picture of what Jesus is trying to teach. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the big picture and we're going to see how that affects our assurance. Now, we got to start, before we ever read any scripture, we got to start with knowing who he's talking to. Now, on that day, we don't know for certain who was in the audience, but it's a good guess that the preponderance of the people that he's talking to are Jews, right? I mean, that makes sense. It's certainly uh, who the Gospel of Matthew is written for, and it's certainly who he's most interested in. Now, why is that important? It's important because every Jew sitting there on that mountain on that day sat down that day with a presupposition. They presuppose that they are already in the kingdom. When they, that from the, from the, you know, from the farmer to the carpenter to the Pharisee, every Jew sat down that day to listen to Jesus and they already believe I'm in the kingdom. Why? Because they are the chosen people of God, right? Not just any God, but the one and only true God. They are children of Abraham. They are children of the promise. Not only that, they've been given the temple and they've been given the priesthood and they've been given the law of Moses. And they're keeping that law. So they think, man, we are, we're in. We are good to go. And by the way, their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, are some of the most pious men who have ever walked this planet. They are devoted to their religion. They spend every waking hour studying the law, teaching the law, practicing the law. Man, they are, they are all in. 
Now, here's the thing. Jesus needs to take a group of people who think they're in the kingdom of heaven, and he needs to get them to the narrow gate. Are you with me? I want you to think about a flock of, uh, of, of sheep or a herd of cows that you, you need to kind of drive them to a place where they realize, uh-oh, maybe I'm not okay, right? This is what he's trying to do with the sermon on the mount. These are the first words out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to cover every verse. I'm just going to kind of hit some spots and show you some highlights. But if you'll remember a year ago, we said there are two Greek words for poor. The first word has the idea of somebody who's poor, but at least they got a roof over their head. They're poor, but at least they've got some resources, meager though they may be. That's not the word that he's using here. There's another word for poor in the Greek that gets used here, and it means beggarly poor. It's the idea of of a blind man or a paralyzed man who lives back then where there is no welfare, there is no social security system. They got nothing. They can't work. They can't earn a living. Their parents can't support them. They have to sit on the street, and they have to beg. That's the beggarly poor. Jesus says, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. For to them belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me tell you, that right there, that's going to be really important. Now, on that day, that was probably the first words. It was the first words out of his mouth. And, and they probably looked at it and think, what did he just say? <laughs> What's he talking about? You know, but that's going to become really, really important in just a little while. Now, after going through the Beatitudes, Jesus, in verse 17 of chapter 5, begins to talk about the law. Now, let's now make sure we understand what the law is. The law is God's standards. It's His requirements and expectations for our behavior, our words, and attitude. In other words, God has certain standards in the Old Testament to cover how we act, how we think, and how we speak. And if you don't meet those standards or you rebel against those standards, that is the very definition of sin. So God had laid all this out in the Old Testament, and Jesus begins to talk about it, and this is what he says. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to do away with God's standards. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest mark will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And here, right about here, is where Jesus drops his first bomb. And it was a bomb. If they were, if they were kicked back on their, on their elbows and relaxing, they sit up when he says this, because here's what he says. For I say to you, Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. By no means. In other words, there is no other way. There is only one way, and that is to have a righteousness that exceeds those men that you look up to. Now, I tried a year ago to make you understand how big of a deal this was. Because not only do they think they're going into heaven, they're looking at their leaders who, again, every day they're reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, practicing the Bible, praying, tithing, fasting. They're doing, I mean, these are the guys. And Jesus says, 
Unless your righteousness is more than them, you're not getting in. The, the best way I can, can get this across to a modern audience would, would be something like this. Imagine Jesus standing up and saying, unless you are more righteous than Billy Graham, or unless you're more righteous than Mother Teresa, or unless you're more righteous than your Aunt Lucy. My point is, you pick whoever in your life that you know, that you look at them and think, boy, if anybody's going to heaven, they are. And Jesus said, no. No. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not getting in. Now, that's a bomb. Now, that raises the question, if you're sitting there that day, what in the world is he talking about? What, what kind of righteousness is there that exceeds those guys? How can you be better than them? And Jesus begins to teach. He says this, You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. See, he says, you've always heard it ha said, don't commit the physical act. As long as you don't commit physical adultery, you're okay. And Jesus said, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You remember what that meant? They taught that it's okay to get revenge as long as you don't go beyond what somebody did to you. They, they cut off your ear, you can cut off their ear. They steal from you, you steal from them. It's okay. As long as you don't go beyond what they did. Jesus said, I tell you, don't even resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to, the, turn to him the other also. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you can love your enemy, but it's okay. I'm sorry, love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. In other words, you, you gotta love other Jews. You gotta love people that look like you and believe like you. Those, that's your neighbor. But all these other people, it's okay to hate them. That's what the uh, Pharisees taught. And Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And, and I'm just picking a few. He goes on and says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Go the extra mile. Give to anyone that asks you. If somebody sues, how crazy is this? If someone sues you for your tunic, give them your coat. They didn't even sue you for that. Just give it to them. You don't have to give it to them. Just do it. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had diluted the law of God. They had lowered the bar down so that they could reach it. Are you with me? And Jesus raises the bar right back up to where it always belonged. This is what the law really means, he says. Now, you, can you imagine sitting there on that day? You think you're getting into heaven. You think you've been doing the right thing. You think you've been keeping the law. And he just keeps raising the bar and raising the bar and raising the bar. And you're getting more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable. And you've got to be asking the question around this time, how good do I have to be? How good do I have to be? And Jesus answers that question at the end of chapter 5. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, Jesus is saying the law reflects God's character. And He is perfectly holy, perfectly good, and perfectly righteous. Therefore, you must be 
perfectly holy, perfectly good, and perfectly righteous. Do you guys understand how impossible that is? Is everybody with me? The, the standard is, is out of sight. No human being can ever do what he's asking them and us to do. And here's the point that he's driving them to. You can't do it. That's the point. That's what he wants them to see. You cannot keep the law. You cannot keep God's commands. Even though you think you are, you're not even close. He's not done, by the way. He turns to chapter 6. He says this, Don't do your righteous acts, giving, praying, and fasting. And we can add anything we want. Uh, serving, teaching, preaching, whatever we do. Don't do them to be seen by others, but only by God. Now, folks, that is a laudable goal, and it's impossible. That's impossible. You see, we live in a flesh that loves to be made much of. We live in a flesh that wants to be respected. We live in a flesh that we want people. Are you with me? Listen, I've been doing this for a long time. I try and try to do it just for God and God alone. And that flesh will just not leave me alone. What do you think they're going to think? How do, you, how, do, how, what, how do they think you look up there? Do they like the color of that shirt? Whatever the case may be. You can't get away from it. Because it's the flesh. You can't do it perfectly. How about this one? Don't lay up treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. Man, that's a wonderful goal. And there's not a single one of us in this building tonight doing it perfectly. There's not a single one of us that couldn't live in a smaller house, drive a cheaper car, wear less expensive clothes, eat out less often, give more to missions. Should I go on? You think you're doing it perfectly? You're not. You're not. And how about this one? Don't worry. <laughs> Has anybody broke that one today? Of course you have. It's laudable. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows, you have, knows that you have need of those things. That's true. And we can't stop worrying. You can't do everything he's asked you to do. And finally, he turns to chapter 7 and says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Boy, this is loaded. Basically, what he's saying here is you don't even keep your own standard. You don't even keep your own standard. It's the same thing that Paul repeats in Romans 2.1. He says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself. You know, every time you judge somebody, you prove you know the standard. You can't stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. No, you know, because you judge other people for doing it. You know the law. You know the standard. You have no excuse. And he finally gets to chapter 7, verse 12, which we know is the golden rule. And this is where he ends his teaching. And he says this, so let me wrap it up for you. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You want to know how to treat other people? Let me give you one little thing you can remember and put in your pocket. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and there's not a single one of us that does that perfectly at any time. And you know it. I know it. I agree. I want to. I'd like to, 
but I, I just can't seem to do it perfectly. Now, I want you to understand something. From Matthew 5.17 to Matthew 7.12 has pretty been a, much been about one thing, and that's the law. God's standards. This is what God wants you to do. This is the requirements that God has for you. This is the expectation that God has for you. And what he's, remember, like we talked about a herd of cows or a a flock of sheep, he's driving them to a point. He's trying to get them to come to the understanding that you and I cannot, by no means, ever enter the kingdom of heaven by keeping God's commands. Can't do it. It's impossible because God requires perfection. He's trying to get them to see it. He's trying to get you and I to see it. You'll never get in by keeping his commands. It's impossible. Now, folks, listen. This is bad, bad, bad news. It's bad news. But there's a reason that Jesus does it. Because you'll never go to the doctor until you know you're sick. And you'll never know you need a Savior until you realize you're a sinner. You see, what he's doing is he's pounding them and pounding them and pounding them and pounding them with the law. So that they can come to the point that I need a Savior. I can't do those things. There's no way I can ever do those things. And just when you think it's hopeless, just when you think there is no way, Jesus says, here's the good news. By the way, this is how we should teach and preach to lost people you got to let them know they're lost before they need a Savior. We need to follow the example of Jesus. Right at the point where they think, okay, there's no way, Jesus said, well, here's the good news. It turns out that there is a way. There is an entrance into heaven. Now, I want to juxtapose Matthew 5.20 and Matthew 7.13. Remember what he said in 5.20? For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 13, he says, enter. Hallelujah. Thank you. There is a way. Now, by the way, if you put those two together, that means the way you enter is with a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's read the rest of that verse. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's a whole lot of people on that. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few that find it. So what he's telling us here is there is a way. And it's tiny. It's narrow. It's hard to find. There's only a few people that find it. But the end of it is life. The end of it is eternal life. Now that just, all that did, by the way, was tell us there is a way. The question is, how do you enter? How do you get in? Now let's go back and pause right here. I told you earlier that verse was going to be important. The very first words out of his mouth, I said, this is going to be important. Let's go back to it. Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, he could say it another way now, right? Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, for they gain entrance into the narrow gate. How do they do it? They come, remember, they're beggarly poor in spirit. They have nothing. They have no resources. 
They have nothing to bring to the table. And I want to give you a picture, okay, of what that verse looks like. This is a parable told by Jesus in Luke 18. He says this, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm righteous. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like that tax collector standing over there. I fast. I give. Do y'all hear it? I, 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 I. And Jesus said, and the tax collector standing afar off wouldn't even, wouldn't even look God in the eye. Couldn't even look him in the eye. He was so ashamed. And it says he beat his breast, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, do you see it? God, I got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I've done a bunch of stuff. I'm a sinner. I got no righteous acts. I'm just, I'm a beggarly poor sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus said, I tell you this, that man went down to his house justified. That means right with God. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now listen, I'm going to put those two scriptures side by side so that you can see it. The Pharisee said, God, look what I got. Look what I've brought you. I fast. I give. I pray. Ah, ah, ah. And then Jesus said on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look what I brought to the table. Look what I got for you. I, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did mighty works in your name. Now, here's a weird thing. I guarantee you, most of you, that one on the left doesn't bother you, but the one on the right does. Why? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Does it bother you because the Pharisee called him God and the, and the man at the end called him Lord because he had better theology? Does it, does it not bother you? The guy on the left only fasted and gave, but the guy on the right is casting out demons and, and doing mighty... Is it because his works were more? If you're looking at it that way, you're looking at the wrong thing. It's not about what he called him. It's not about what he did. It's about his attitude. Do you not see that? It's his attitude. God, look what I did. Look what I brought to the table. Look, look, look what I deserve, what I earned, what I merit. It's their attitude that they come to God. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humble. Folks, listen to me. I don't care what the work is. You cannot come to God. You will never get into the kingdom trusting in your own works. I don't care what the work is. Fasting, praying, serving, preaching, teaching, prophesying, I don't care. It has nothing to do with your salvation. You're not going to get into heaven because you got the good, you got a lot of knowledge. You're going to get into heaven because you got all these religious acts. You're not going to get into heaven without all your accomplishments. Why? Because they're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. They are useless. They are filthy rags 
in his eyes. You enter the kingdom of God in one way and one way only, and that is to know and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's it. There is no other way. John, uh, Jesus says this in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you and your son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life means you know God and you know Jesus Christ. That's it. It's got nothing to do with works. How about this one in Philippians? This is the, the connection between knowing God and having faith in Christ. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 4, 3, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Can I tell you my favorite word is in that? Does anybody got a guess? Ungodly. I love that. That's me. I'm not godly. I'm not godly. Don't think because you see me up here on Wednesday night that I'm godly. Trust me, I'm not godly. I need a savior. I need somebody that's not, doesn't, God, Jesus said, I didn't come to, to justify people who think they're righteous. I came to justify people who will admit I'm not godly. I need a savior. That's what he came for. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works. Do y'all, do y'all get a theme here? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And let me tell you something. I'm going to give you something right here that's really good. That's going to really help you. This good news is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. I heard a man the other day by the name of John Lennox. Somebody asked him, what's the difference between Christianity and religion? Is it morality? He said, no. No. Every religion, people in other religions can be moral people. You can even find people, atheists, that try to be moral people. That's not what sets Christianity apart. And then he gave this illustration. He said, this is religion. I want you to imagine a road... Going toward your death and judgment. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. What religion says is this. While you're on that road, you better work. You better work. You better earn. You better deserve. You better merit. You got, you get it. Get after it. And they hold out this, this carrot at the end that maybe, maybe you'll be accepted. Now they can't tell you you're accepted because when you depend on works, how do you ever know? How do you know you've done enough? You, you can't know. But here's the difference. Religion puts the acceptance at the end. Christianity puts the acceptance at the beginning. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. Ephesians 1, six says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which, what? His grace, He has made us accepted in the Beloved. 
I love that. I'm already accepted. Now, we'll talk about those works that come and and what part they play. We'll talk about that more next week. But you don't have to wait to the end to know you belong to Him. You can know right now. He wants you to know right now. Now, I'm looking at the clock. We are about two-thirds of the way through this sermon. And I, the whole sermon, the point, is about assurance. And I hadn't mentioned it yet. In fact, th- th- that's the title of the sermon, of the lesson. That's the subject of the lesson. But yet, I have spent two-thirds of it talking about law and talking about gospel. Why? Because if you really want to have assurance, if you, and when I say assurance, I mean certainty. If you want to have certainty that you are saved, you got to understand the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, you will always struggle. You're going to all you're going to spend your life going around that same mountain and you'll basically be useless as a Christian. Cuz you can't ever figure out am I really saved? Am I not saved? Now I feel saved. No, I don't. I mean, it, it, it you're just it. I want to say a few things about assurance. Number 1. God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to have assurance. Just the way that I want my my sons and my grandchildren to know they belong to me. I don't want them to ever be a shadow of doubt in their mind that I'm their daddy. God wants the same thing. He wants you to have assurance. Listen to some of these. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That's what he wants from you and I. He wants to walk through this life confident that I am a child of God. Full assurance. And he's done things to make that happen. For example, Romans 8, 15 and 16. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not what he wants for you. He, don't want you, he doesn't want you fearful when you're reading scriptures. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit wants to bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. He wants to do that. Or how about the Word of God? Did you know that we've been given one entire book in the New Testament for the specific purpose that you may know that you have eternal life? 1 John The apostle writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, say it with me, know that you have eternal life. That's the whole book's written for that. So you got the Spirit who wants to to agree with your Spirit. You got the Word of God sitting there that wants to teach you and, and show you the ways that you can know. But yet the fact is we struggle. And my guess, and I won't make everybody raise their hand because my guess is pretty much everybody in here would raise their hand. I think it's widespread. We struggle with assurance, whether we know and knowing that we are truly saved. The question is, why? Why do we struggle? Now, let me say there are some valid reasons, okay? Did you know, for example, that after you're born again, that you're more sensitive to sin? Listen, I don't know if you guys remember, but before you got saved, you, you care less. Now, you didn't, it didn't bother you at all. It bothered you if you got caught. It, it bothered you if somebody got mad with you or wanted, but, but it, they actually, you never thought about God. Then all of a sudden, he changed a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
And folks, listen, I'm 60 years old, and I'll tell you now, in case you don't know, when you get way, I'm 50 years in to being a Christian, and 50 years in, you're going to be walking along one day thinking, yeah, this is easy, I got it now. And he'll point something out in your life, and you think, oh, gosh, what's wrong with me? How, how, how can I still be doing that? You, you're, you should be sensitive to sin. That, that's a good thing. That's a good sign. But sometimes people will think, oh, man, am I really saved? How about this one, comparing yourself to others? Don't do that. Everybody starts at a different place. I was very fortunate. I didn't have to start at a place where I had to deal with trauma in my life. I didn't have to deal with that. But other people start. Are you with me? People are different. People mature differently. You can't compare yourself to other people. Sometimes it's because of spiritual immaturity, not understanding what salvation is, not understanding the Word. Sometimes it's recurring sin. Again, we we have this sin that just keeps coming back and we begin to question our salvation. Difficult circumstances can sometimes make us... uh, But here's what I want you to see. Regardless of the cause, those are just all symptoms of a much, much, much bigger issue. And that issue is this. We struggle with finding assurance because we're looking for it in the wrong place. We struggle with finding assurance because we look for it in the wrong place. You see, the fact is, and you're going to know this is true, you're going to feel exactly what I'm saying is true, that we tend to seek assurance in ourselves. We look at our spiritual growth. We look at the works that we're doing. We look at, am I obeying God's Word? Am I praying enough? Am I reading my Bible enough? And by the way, those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, those are all evidences of salvation. They can and should bolster our confidence. They should bolster our assurance. This is why the book of 1 John says things like this. And by this we know him that we've come, by, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Or we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Those are, those are evidences. They're, those are good things. But listen to me, folks. The Sermon on the Mount has already... Listen, the Sermon on the Mount shows us how to live. But would you agree with me? At the same time, it shows us it will never do it perfectly. Never. Not any of them. That is why you and I cannot look to ourselves. You can't look to your behavior. You can't look to your attitudes. You can't look to your thoughts. You can't look to your words as the grounds or the foundation or the basis of your assurance. Let me give you a newsflash. You will never measure up. You will always fall short. You'll never measure up. See, the reality of the spiritual life is this. It's up and down, is it not? There's days when your faith is strong, and there's days where your faith is weak. There's days where you feel like a Christian, and there's going to be days where you don't feel like a Christian. If you go by that, you're going to be in and out, in and out, constantly struggling with assurance. Let me ask you a question. Do you not see how foolish it is to believe that our works will not save us and then turn around and look to those same works as the grounds of whether or not we're saved? Do you not see the foolishness of that? Oh, I'm saved by grace, not by works. Well, how do you know you're saved? Let me go look at my works. That makes no sense. Folks, listen. 
What did Paul say in Galatians? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, do you somehow think you're made perfect in the flesh? That's foolish. But that's the lens that we use. That's why we come to this Scripture. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And we look at that and think, oh my gosh, I'm not doing that. I, I'm calling him Lord, but, but I'm, I mean, I'm not, I don't even pray. I'm, sometimes I forget to pray. And I'm not, oh, I hadn't read my Bible in three days. I, I, you see what you're doing? Where are you looking? You're looking here. You're comparing yourself to them. And, and it's, just a, it's just a mess. Don't do that. Folks, in fact, let me say this. Stop thinking like an unbeliever thinks. That's how unbelievers think. Did you not see it in the passage? God, they come to God Almighty and say, look what we did. That's what an unbeliever does. Why, when it comes to our assurance, would I think the same way? In fact, let me set you free for just a minute. When it comes to salvation, your works are off the table. That's what the Sermon on the Mount has done. He set the bar so high. He said, when it comes to salvation and being saved, just take works off the table. They don't even come into the equation. Get them completely off the table. They don't even exist. Let that Scripture set you free. Let that same Scripture right there. It's ridiculous that we would ever bring our pitiful works, whatever they are, they're off the table. Just that, don't even consider that. You see, listen, folks, I work, yes, but I work not to be accepted. I work because I'm already accepted. Do you see the difference? I, I'm not, my salvation has nothing to do with my works. Good, bad, indifferent, nothing. Nothing. You see, our assurance, instead of being based on ourselves, must be based on the character and the promises of God. It's just that simple. This is so simple. And it's a simple question. Will you just believe what he says? It's that simple. You want assurance? This is how easy it is. Will you believe what he says? John 1, 12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, not who prayed three times a day or read their Bible through once a year or cast out demons or anything. They only what? Believed. He gave the right to become children of God. John 3.36, the words of Christ, whoever believes in, his, in the Son has what? Eternal life. How? You just believe in Him. Do you believe that? John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me, you've got salvation. You've got eternal life. John 10.28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are the words of Christ. These are the words of God. Do you believe it? John nineteen thirty. when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he did enough on the cross to save you? Or do you think you got to go out and work and work and earn and merit and just add some more to it? Did, did he only do 80% and you got to do the other 20? Did he only do 99% and you got to do the other 1%? What did he say? It's finished. Do you believe him? 
Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You got peace with God. Do you believe it? Listen, God loves you. If you're a Christian, if you belong to him, he loves you. You are his child. You're no longer his enemy. I was walking, I, I try to, I've been trying to get out and walk around my property, and yesterday I was out walking and thinking about this, and we had, we had my grandson over. And can I tell you, as a father or a grandfather, you, you ever have a, a child starts to emulate you, and they act like you, and they try to run like you, or chop wood like you, or do, let me tell you, they, they do it terribly. Do you care? Doesn't that delight you? Doesn't that give you joy? Listen, the Father delights when we try. He knows we're not perfect. In fact, let me give you, let me help you. He already knows you're going to fail. He already knows it. He knows you're not going to be perfect. He's already said. In fact, 1 John says, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. And if you, and, and when he says, when you do sin, just ask for forgiveness, confess, and Jesus Christ is faithful and just to confi- uh, forgive you of your sins. He already knows that. But he delights in the trying. He delights. He loves that. Romans 4, 16, for this reason, it is by faith and order that it may be in accordance with grace. So the promise will be, say it with me. Do you believe Jesus He's not a company that says it's guaranteed until you really need it to be guaranteed. When he's not a man that he can lie. When he says it's guaranteed, he, 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 he means it's guaranteed. Listen, folks, the only way our eternal future can be guaranteed is not if it rests on me or on you, but if it rests on his grace. Therefore, it is grace, not our works, that has to be the basis of our assurance. It's like Alistair Begg, when you get to heaven, you're in heaven for one reason. The man on the cross said I could come. Y'all remember that story? Wasn't that an awesome story I told? Uh, Alistair Begg talks about the thief on the cross and he gets to heaven and they, they're saying, well, what are you doing here? And they say, do you, do you know theology? No. Do you have any doctrinal, doctrinal statements? No. Have you done any good works? No. What are you doing here? He said, the man on the cross said I could come. That's the only reason any of us are going to be in heaven, because the man on the cross said I could come. I end with a very simple question, and I think, I hope this helped me so much. By the way, two weeks ago, I'm walking my property saying, God, don't let me be deceived. I'm just like you. God, show me what assurance is all about, and he set me free. What it, what, it feels so great to just know that you know, not because I'm looking at me, but because I'm looking at him. So I'm going to, I'm going to, this question came to me and I'm going to give it to you. It's a very simple question. If you stood before Jesus right now and he asked you this, why should I let you in? By the way, that seems theoretical, but in, in effect, every single one of us are standing before him right now. You're, you're living this out right now. Why should I let you in? Now read that passage. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not 
prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's my question. On that day, when you stand before him, is that what you're going to say? Are you going to say, Lord, here's what I did. Here's why you should let me in. I taught Sunday school for 20 years. I, I, I went to church faithfully. For 40 years, I gave, I didn't get to give just 10%, I gave 15% regularly. I, I, I did, is that what you're going to say? By the way, if that's what you're going to say, you should be afraid. You should be terrified. Because that's what he'll say to you. But if you can truly say that on that day, I would never say that. That I'm going to come to him and I'm going to say, God, why should you let me in? Have mercy on me. I got nothing. I got no reason to let you in other than that I believe that you are Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God who died on a cross, rose the third day for my sins. I believe that. And he's going to say, welcome in, son. Welcome in, son. See, that's my thing. What are you going to say? If, if you're going to come to him with works... Be afraid. But listen to me. If you're not going to do that, if you're not going to say something like that, that's not you. Don't let that challenge your assurance. Don't let that put fear and anxiety in you. That's not you. You believe in Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not about how many times a day you pray or how much you're reading the Bible. Those are good things. But your salvation is by grace and by grace alone. Do you believe? It's just that simple. Listen, when you lack assurance, please remember this. In fact, when you lack assurance, I would encourage you to go back to that verse. The one verse. And look at what those people say. And you need to remember that salvation has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. And it has nothing to do with anything you ever will do. That's law. It's all about him and what he's already done. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this incredible passage. I pray, Jesus, as I prayed before this service, that you would use your word. Use your Holy Spirit right now, Holy Spirit, to bear witness with those. If there's anyone here who's struggling, any of your children who is struggling with their assurance, struggling. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now, take the Word of God and bear witness with them. Do it right now in the name of Jesus. God, let them know that they know that they know and let them walk out of this building with a new joy, with a new courage, with a new boldness, with a newfound faith to go out and work not to be accepted, but to work because they already are accepted. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace, thank you for your mercy, thank you for a plan of salvation that puts everybody the same. The prostitutes, the beggars, the murderers, the homosexuals, the, the, the preachers, we're, we all come the same way. We all must enter the same gate. What a beautiful plan. It's so inclusive, God, so inclusive. But yet there's only one way, and that's you. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. 
If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.